0: Welcome to The Balance Sheet, where you can rise above the noise and learn about the most important business issues of our age. I'm your host and fellow student, Conrad Chua. Sometimes, tackling climate change seems like such a huge, insurmountable challenge. You need the big guns like governments, the people sector, and large companies, and they're all developing their own solutions to reduce carbon emissions. But does Tackling climate change lends itself to the startup environment. Can the VC model that has been so successful in scaling global tech companies do the same for clean tech startups? Can you app your way to net zero? We have today Chris Coleridge to talk about these issues. Chris was an entrepreneur before stumbling into academia. At Cambridge, he has lots of experience teaching and guiding students interested in entrepreneurship. And he knows more than most about what it takes to bring science and business together. Somehow he found the time to start Carbon 13, and here he, he's here today to tell us what it, it takes to build clean tech ventures. So welcome, Chris.
1: Great to see you, Conrad, uh, and good to be with you all.
0: Chris, what is Carbon 13?
1: Carbon-13 is the venture builder for the climate emergency. Uh, we, we had a, I and the team had a core insight when we when we kicked it off, which was that the urgency of capitalism, the, the way that uh, in, investors really like to make money sooner rather than later, uh, there's a time value to money, uh, absolutely matches the urgency of the climate crisis. Uh, and that, uh, we, yes, there are lots of ways in which humanity is going to need to adapt and evolve uh, in order to, to to get past climate change and, and and find new ways of living on this planet sustainably uh, but right now we have a tool we have a tool for making change and getting it around the world quite quickly uh, and that's and that's startups and so maybe startups aren't perfect maybe venture capital isn't perfect but it is an established vector of change and therefore we need to make as a humanity we need to make use of it uh, in order to get the, get the changes we need to see out into the world. The other big advantage of using startups is that uh, you know, large companies will make a contribution to, to the adaptation that we need to see. But there are certain areas, certain types of innovation that we know, and this is what I've been studying for a long time, that we know that uh, the uh, you know, large corporations are bad at. And you need entrepreneurs to tackle uh, issues uh, around uh, like new regulations coming along. L- large companies don't typically respond to, to to regulations in a sort of proactive way. They wait, maybe they try to defer the regulations, then they react. Entrepreneurs often get going before the regulations are fully clear, fully uh, fu- fully inked in. So you need entrepreneurs for that type of innovation. You need entrepreneurs for any type of innovation where the new model, the new innovation is going to cannibalize the revenue streams of existing businesses. Existing businesses tend not to touch that. Uh, and so you need entrepreneurs if they're going to do something that is really fundamentally changing the nature of the of, of, of the industry uh, in that way. Sometimes large companies are good at behavior change type innovation, but generally they're not so great at it. And it's entrepreneurs who are willing to take a bet on, actually, I think consumers are willing to look at, look at look at things in a in in a different way and lastly you need startups for interdisciplinary innovation in a large company the the corporate culture the organizational culture the perspective on what is innovation tends to be pretty rigid Uh, and so if you want to blend insights from different domains uh, entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial teams are much better at doing that Uh, so all of these things meant that we said we're going to fight climate change and you know as a personal epiphany that I had in 2019, that I was going to spend the rest of my career working to uh, to, to fight against the climate crisis. Uh, you, you know, entrepreneurs and startups are a big part of that, and and our model was to uh, build ventures and do it at speed, at, at in, in high volume, quickly get things out out of the lab and into the commercial world uh, as quickly as possible.
0: Mm. And we've got uh, a number of people in the audience who knows a bit a thing or two about this, so. Uh... Someone that we know very well in Cambridge, Jeremy, uh, is here. Thanks so much, Jeremy, for just, uh, tuning in. Uh, Priya, who was an MBA alum from almost 10 years ago, I think, and she works at Thea Ventures, uh, and I know they do a lot of investments, I think, in clean tech and a lot of other social causes. And Martin is from Toronto, I think, and he's or in Canada, and he uh, says entrepreneurs have a higher tolerance to risk. Before we go into some of the other issues, um, Chris, why did you call it carbon-13?
1: Well, carbon-13 is uh, is an isotope of carbon uh, that's very rare. It's only about one percent of the carbon uh, on the planet. And when the climate scientists were working on the proof that climate change is caused by human beings. Uh, they discovered that carbon 13, which is a byproduct of uh, industrial activity, starts showing up in tree rings in a greater quantity in about 1850. Uh, and you know, there's a bunch of other experiments and sort of proofs in the, in, the, in, in the chain of proof, but this was actually an important discovery in being able to say definitively that this is not just a sort of a random walk that the climate's doing, but that we're causing it. And, and part of the carbon-13 sort of ethos is uh, we caused it, we better fix it. Uh, and, and that's what the entrepreneurs we work with are doing.
0: Mm. And just a reminder to our audience, you can put your questions for Chris in the chat or comments. So Chris, you mentioned, uh, you made a very convincing case that entrepreneurs, startups have a huge role to play when in, in tackling climate change. Why is it that uh, when we look at all the VC, bigger VC investments, they are really, you know, the thing that grabs the headlines seem to be the next super app, you know, the next automotive, uh, automated driving things. But we don't get to hear that much about something that's going to help us bring down our carbon emissions.
1: Yeah, uh, great, great question. So I, I can remember very well back in 2019 when we kicked off carbon 13, had So many coffees and meetings with investors, uh, and and I remember being introduced to one of the Cambridge Angels, which is one of the sort of great, uh, great things we've got here in the Cambridge ecosystem—the the, the group of, uh, of of fantastic investors who really understand uh, technological innovation very well. Uh, and he was introduced to me as, oh, he's one of the Cambridge Angels who's really interested in clean tech. And this guy said, well, I'm really disappointed that my friend introduced me as someone who is interested in clean tech, because that just means i lost a lot of money on clean tech 1.0 uh and uh, and of course there was a wave after al gore's uh film an in- inconvenient truth uh sort of 15 years ago uh uh of uh of of climate tech uh innovation we didn't call it climate tech in those days we called it clean tech uh and you know all, many of those businesses that were started 15 years ago uh, are actually some of the big players in the energy transition uh, transition now they're not sexy they're not tesla although some people would call tesla a clean tech but we could that's a a separate discussion um uh, they're not sexy but they are changing the energy landscape they are driving really very significant changes in the carbon emissions profile of, of 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 the industry so you know what Carbon 13's doing is working at the earliest stage, and I feel pretty confident in saying that some of our some uh, of some of our investments uh, we've made sixty five investments in the last two years. Um, some of our investments will be famous uh, and and household names in a few years' time. Now, having said that, we of those sixty five investments only two or three are consumer facing. Right? The vast majority of the activity in the in the climate tech space, or at least what I think is the promising end of, of the activity, is focused on helping industry make the transition between uh, high carbon intensity activity and and low or or net negative uh, carbon t- intensity activity. So so there's a certain element of behind the scenes uh, sort of innovation that's 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 part of the answer to your question.
0: Mm. Other than the fact that um, most of the climate tech Startups, uh, good ideas, were going to be behind the scenes. What is the difference between, let's say, a VC, for from a VC point of view, investing in an app that can roll out on the app store versus uh, something on climate tech? What are the kind of different kinds of financial calculations and risk that go through the VC's mind?
1: Well, I think the key, the key thing to understand is how. It, again, it comes back to this point I made earlier about urgency, right? Uh, if you do the financial model for how is a software-only company going to get from just an idea to a really globe-spanning company, uh, there are many examples of software companies that have done that in, you know, less than 10 years, right? And so, if I'm an investor doing my calculations about when am I going, going to get my return, you no. uh, 10 years from the start, or let's say five to seven years after the company has done the sort of initial prototyping and testing and validation, uh, seems, you know, that that works out in terms of cost of capital uh, quite nicely. Whereas if you're doing something hardware-based, you might have to add an extra three years to how long it's going to take from just an idea to a globe-spanning company, right? Even a company we can think of like Apple, which grew so fast and so... Uh, and was so so prominent as the microcomputer technology came to uh, came came to reality, it actually took fifteen years for them to become a really important company financially, right and and so uh, and and they didn't become the sort of number one company in the world for many, many years after that, right? so so it, it's literally uh, you know pe- people always focus on, oh, but you know hardware ideas or science-based ideas are capital intensive. it's It's partly that. Uh, it's partly that you need to deploy you know, money to build factories that doesn't need to, or build installations that doesn't need to be done in the in the software world. But it's but it's actually just as relevant to focus on. You know, is it going to take ten years to come to maturity or fifteen years to come to maturity? Investors care a lot about that kind of thing. Now, again, going back to the to 2019, I talked to so many investors who said. For that reason, for the reason of just we've just been covering, you will never see VCs backing those kinds of companies. And they, of course, those predictions in 2019 uh, were totally wrong. Now, why were they wrong? They were wrong because ultimately, the climate tech bet is a is a relatively safe bet. And I know that sounds ridiculous when you're talking about risky, uh, you know, uh, risky venture capital innovation, but. It's not really a question of uh, of if we're going to solve the climate crisis. It's a question of when and how we're going to solve the climate crisis. Right? We we won't survive on this planet if we don't address the carbon emissions. Right. So, uh, investors really like that thesis. They really like the idea that, you know, the question is not is there going to be techno technological change. It's when and how. What form is it the technological change going to going to take? If you look at the the VC boom over the last 30 years, it's been based on the internet, it's been based on digital technologies and the idea that all oh, that stuff is inevitable. Climate tech shares this sort of, hey, it's inevitable, it's going to happen, uh, you just have to get your money on, you know, as an investor, you just have to get your money on the right horse. Uh, you don't have to worry about whether the race is one that's uh, even you know, worth uh, worth running. And if you compare that to some of the things we've seen, like crypto, uh, no offense to any crypto enthusiasts in the in, in, in the audience, right? But, uh, you know, there's no danger that climate tech is suddenly going to be seen as irrelevant uh, in the way that crypto, for example, is currently, you know, viewed by most of the world. There's still some hardcore people who say, no, but there's potential here. But most of the world has said, oh, crypto is kind of a, a fad. Uh, that's not going to happen to climate tech. Mm.
0: And we have a question here from Boris. Boris Adoku, who's an MBA alum, and he's based in Dhaka, Senegal. I think it's a good time to ask this question, which is, he, asks, he says he advises uh, uh, climate tech companies operating in sub-Saharan Africa, and somehow this clean tech or climate tech portion of the entire landscape of climate finance is very small, especially in that part of the world, because they, there's a perception that there's a larger risk in terms of climate tech investments there. What are your thoughts about how you can people can shift that perception uh, to something like what you mentioned—that climate tech is inevitable and people should get on that horse or find a horse to get on?
1: It's a great question, Boris. I, I, I think the the challenge is one that is, is is universal to innovation, not just climate tech innovation, and that is that people looking to place those early stage bets on what could happen in 10 or 12 years time they make the assumption which could be wrong (laughs) uh, but they make the assumption that you know the, the 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 most relevant future companies are going to come out of the innovation hubs that we know cambridge mit stanford shenzhen and uh bangalore and so on right so uh so it means that if you're not in one of those innovation hubs you don't see so much activity around the really kind of cutting-edge, early-stage stuff. You're more involved, and I'm imagining this is what you, what, what your bread and butter is in your job. Uh, you're more involved in rolling out technologies that originated in one of those places that I just mentioned. Right. Uh, now, this is, a, this is a fundamental challenge for every government: is to say, okay, how can how can our innovation hubs become more uh, more central to uh, to actually originating the innovations not just being the recipient of the, those innovations being rolled out um, and I think in Africa there's actually an interesting uh play if you think about you know in, by, by the end of this century uh I, I think I've seen that the majority of the world's population will be living in Africa uh the uh, you know the, the 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 areas of the world that are going to be hardest hit, by the climatic changes are often in africa and 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 those two uh points you know kind of could lead to the direction of some kind of important innovation hubs arrive arising in africa now obviously there are already some very interesting innovation activities going on uh in in the uh in you know in the hubs that we know um but they do struggle to be seen as oh well this is the cluster where you want to look for the next uh, the next thing and i think governments need to be quite strategic about saying okay how can we increase our our soft power over the next 20 40 50 years uh, one of the ways is by really fostering those very uncertain uh, early stage innovation activities in our geography i hope that's mm-hmm. it. that you know that's that's uh, that's helpful for us
0: i think that leads on very nicely to sam's question which is the role of governments uh, how should governments partner with VCs uh, to to catalyze these well risky climate tech innovation, or do you feel that private markets uh, are doing it fine?
1: Well, Sam, we're we're seeing a massive experiment on exactly the question that you're asking in the form of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, in the U.S., uh, which is doing doing precisely what you're what you're talking about and creating a pull factor, if you like, for, um, uh, for these, uh, for, for, these, for these, uh, uh, innovation activities. Uh, it's fascinating from a sort of global perspective to see, you know, the Americans like appear, you know, the U S government appears to like the idea of addressing the climate crisis through subsidies and incentives. Whereas the EU governments, uh, and and the UK is a bit closer to that than they are to the US on this particular uh, uh, area. Prefer to focus on regulation, right? And it's almost like it's a it's a sort of two competing theories of change, right? The, the the Europeans are saying, change the regulations, and established companies and startups will innovate in response to those changes. And the Americans are saying, yeah, you know, show me the money, uh, and 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 do it that way. Um, I'm glad that there's two that both approaches are being tried, right? I think if if it would be a shame if the EU abandoned its approach and went to the U.S. approach, and in a, in a way, uh, the U.S. approach, especially given the the polarization in their politics, uh, they they could have a lot of difficulty with the with the EU's approach. So I think it's good, it's healthy for the world that we've got sort of different uh, different different models, uh, different models here. People, you know, to your question, Sam people talk a lot about the missing middle in climate finance and the idea that you know is there uh is is there a you know a, a chance to um you know, get 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 projects through what we sometimes call the technological valley of death uh that, that 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 happens and i think there's two things to think about one is if you look at venture capital and you look at any given entrepreneur complaining that they can't raise their next fundraising round you have to remember that the venture capital is kind of a tournament uh and and it's a feature not a bug that some entrepreneurs are going to fail and uh and not be able to raise their next fundraising round that's part of how the whole venture capital sort of funnel is selecting the best technologies that you know really seem to be getting traction and 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 doing well so if you hear an entrepreneur complaining they can not raise their next investment it's not always a sign that there's something broken in the innovation system it's actually part of what's what's supposed to happen uh the other thing i'd say is that going back to my comments about inevitability we are going to see the missing middle problem solved right? because the world cannot afford for uh, for all these uh, you know every all these technologies to to to, uh, to to fall by the wayside but you know the difference between yeah some are going to fail and that's actually sort of how the vc system works uh, and uh, there are going to be instruments created in line with your question, that will sort of deal with the, the the sort of project finance and structured finance and sort of capital-intensive finance uh, and the instruments that need to be in place to make that happen. Though they, you know, many I, I know many talented entrepreneurs who are working on precisely that problem. Is you know they want to be the ones to come up with the fintech uh, instruments that are uh, that are that are that are going to solve that problem.
0: So. Chris, this is a good time for you. Maybe if we talk a bit about Carbon Thirteen, how do you, how does Carbon Thirteen go about that process of selecting which kind of uh, ventures to back?
1: Thank you very much. Well, it's a bottom-up process, right? Carbon Thirteen is uh, is basic. The basic idea is that uh, rather than trying to predict in advance what the future of uh, you know, technological landscape looks like, which is what a lot of investors do. They try to kind of say, "Ah, this is how I think the world's going to go." Uh, we are looking to back the best teams, right? And of course, we're we we're, we're, we're thinking carefully about their ideas uh, and the quality of their ideas and the and the evidence that they've been able to put together about their ideas. But uh, but really, uh, there's a lot of evidence in, uh, in in the world and in academia to tell us that the quality of the team is is supremely important when you're making these uh, early-stage investment decisions. Now, the way our process works is we bring together a cohort twice a year in Cambridge, uh, and we also have cohorts in Berlin, and we do work uh, virtually as well. We bring together cohorts of uh, 80 people, 40 technologists and 40 uh, business people, uh, commercial folks. The average age of our cohorts is 37, right? So, so these are not people who are straight out of university. We we sometimes have people who got sort of amazing first class honours in their engineering degree in in Cambridge, but but on the whole, it's it's uh, it's people who are uh, a bit more seasoned. Um, the technologists and the scientists are typically bringing some kind of IP, some kind of intellectual property, uh, some idea. Um, the commercial founders sometimes they're bringing an idea but often uh they are just bringing their experience and they're looking for somebody fantastic to work with right um we talk a lot in carbon 13 about half hunches right that one person's got a technology hunch another person's got a market hunch and it's not until the two meet uh that you start to really see the magic uh the the, the magic happen uh we run a program that's our program is eight and a half months and it starts with six weeks of the 40 technologists and the 40 uh, um, uh, commercial folks meet, uh, getting together. And it's a little bit like Love Island. They have to team up. Uh, if they don't team up, they're off the program. And from a given group of 80, we get roughly 30 teams forming. And those 30 teams go through to the second stage, which is a three-month program where we're, we have our entrepreneurs in residence who are successful uh, entrepreneurs, exited entrepreneurs. We have our carbon experts in residence who are people who really understand the, the sort of levers of impact and how decarbonization works uh, in the real world. And uh, the teams work with those experts. Uh, and there's a big group of domain experts coming from the Cambridge ecosystem primarily that we have uh, that we've assembled. Uh, and uh, they work with those experts to put flesh on the bones of their idea. Uh, and of course, a big part of it is not just consulting experts, it's going out and talking to customers figuring out, well, you know, it's all very well to have a grand vision, uh, but how is the journey going to start, right? Who's the first pilot customer? What's the first value proposition that's going to be important to that to that customer? At the end of the three months, the 30 teams pitch our investment committee. Uh, they do two pitches. They do what we call the carbon pitch, where they need to uh, convince us that uh, the venture has a chance of, uh, Reducing emissions by 10 million tons CO2 equivalent uh, uh, per annum, right? That if, if it scales, if it reaches sort of critical mass, is it going to have that level of impact? Uh, and then they do an investment pitch, which is you know, is this a good business idea? And we think it's important to have both pitches, right? Because uh, there's a lot of greenwashing out there, uh, and you know, you, we we don't want, we, we don't want to waste our investors' money, and we don't want to waste our time uh focused on stuff that is not uh is is not really kind of going to make a big difference uh we're trying to find points of leverage that are really going to make a make make a significant impact um and it's and it goes beyond that Our, our our the carbon pitch and the idea that you're going for 10 million tons co2 equivalent emissions per annum is partly about uh you know having a big vision right If you want to raise venture capital, if you want to be going on the venture capital journey, you need to be doing something that is potentially going to become a major organization, a major company. And 10 million tons CO2 equivalent emissions is a lot of carbon. Uh, The carbon footprint of a typical British person is six and a half tons, or an average British person is six and a half tons. So, uh, you know, you can see that if you're going to reduce global emissions by 10 million tons, that's a big company. That's, that's something that's, got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies and is really making a difference. Um, so, yeah, that's our process. Once we, we make about, uh, we make a certain number of investments per cohort. And uh, then there's another three month process, which is helping them make further progress and get ready to raise more money. We're investing £120,000 in each of our, of our startups. We've made 65 investments like that in the last two years. And then they need to go on and, and, and spread their wings uh, and, and uh, get out, get away from carbon thirteen, if you like, and uh, and and raise money from from other investors.
0: Chris, you mentioned Love Island. I've, I've I swear I've never watched a single episode, so I don't know what happens there. But you know, when you when you it's bring these uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, when you bring these scientists and the people with the business ideas, what's the kind of dynamics the kind of uh, uh, the atmosphere in, in, in when, when you bring them together do they have very different views and how do you reconcile that
1: well that is part of our magic is is that uh, what we what I've seen a lot of in my career in universities is scientist driven innovation where quite reasonably the scientist is very is very proud and pleased With themselves and the and the quality of their thinking and the and the the cleverness of their innovation but the result is all too often it i mean obviously not always but all too often the result is that the scientist leading the project doesn't take commercial input at the right moment uh or or sort of get somebody commercial on board but sort of as a helper right rather than somebody who's really significant in driving the project so part of our magic is that we we insist, we will not invest in teams where there isn't this blend of, of technical and business expertise in the team. Um, and they the glue that brings them together to your question is that we're calling to them to come and work on an idea with major potential to decarbonize, right? And so we are really screened. We get 1,000 applications per cohort. We interview about 250 people. We make 120 offers. Uh, 80 people actually show up uh, from those 120 offers. And we are, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're screening to a certain extent on how purpose-driven are people, right? Are, are they doing it because they just see climate tech as like the, the latest money-making bandwagon to jump on? Or are they doing it for purpose-driven reasons? And we think purpose-driven reasons, it's not just that, hey, we're, we like to sit around the campfire and all uh, sing from the same hymn sheet about the importance of, of addressing climate change, it's, it's about having the persistence and the risk appetite, as Martin was saying earlier, uh, for, the, for the long haul, right? For, for being able to, to, to go on a 10-year journey to build a major organization, right? Um, now, once you form that team, and the team is aligned around a vision and mission, uh, and we do a lot of work in Carbon-13 to get good sort of foundations in place for, for, for the team, uh, then instead of the commercial person being viewed as, oh, you know, you're helping me with my technological innovation, the commercial person is part of the team, right? They've got, you know, they've, they're kind of co-leading, co co-owning the project, right? And that's, you know, there, there are different ways that it works out in terms of how much equity each person, how many shares in the company each person takes, uh, who's sitting around the table, that depends on lots of factors. But you know, the top team includes the right people who, for the whole journey right you know you're going to need to bring on different skills at different stages of the journey but my observation throughout my career is if you leave the commercial stuff on the side and you just say oh no this is a technical challenge uh then you slow down and sometimes kill the potential of it really to 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 go to the moon um so that's a very you know i love your question because it's a very important part of what carbon 13 is all about
0: And which are the sort of hot areas uh, of investor interest in climate tech that you see?
1: Well, right now, uh, the two hottest, I would say, are... Well, remember that I'm talking about the earliest stage, right? right? So if you look at the... If you, look, if you, if you download a report from PwC or, or uh, ctvc.org is a great resource for people who are interested in climate tech venture capital. Um, you're going to see that the vast majority of money is going into the energy transition and uh, and transport, right? Uh, but that is just a reflection that those two categories are the mature categories that sort of got kicked off in clean tech 1.0 15 years ago. So the hot areas in terms of early stage right now are built environment and agric- agriculture, agriculture and food, right? And built environment, it's simply because... That's seen as a low-hanging fruit for the regulators, right? The regulators are putting great pressure on the construction industry generally to move to net-zero techniques really quickly, and that creates a pull factor where every construction firm that you can think of in the world is looking for net-zero innovations that can help them drive down the the embodied carbon and the and the carbon in their uh, in their in their in their project. Um, the other area is agriculture that's because there's two tracks it's not just uh, two push factors right it's not just uh decarbonization in in ag tech it's also that the world food system has a lot of problems right it's under a lot of pressure kind of partly coming from climate change but a lot of it coming from just intensive agriculture to feed eight eight nine billion people uh is very very difficult and we are depleting the topsoil for example uh at, a, at an astonishing rate i mean if we if we don't slow down the rate at which we're depleting the topsoil, there will be no food in 40 years time or no you know, no food but there'll be famine worldwide famine in 40 years time so so the drivers of agricultural innovation are extremely urgent uh and and not just driven by the climate uh, imperative so so that's the other area that's very uh that's that's very hot
0: and we have a question here from uh Bavatarak, uh, a re- recent hero uh, at CJB's MFin program, and Bhavatarak Ta- says, you know, apart from hardware, do you think that there's room for, say, uh, software uh, SaaS startups, right? Software as a service startups uh, to do things like data capture, mitigating climate-related risk, uh, help build resilience, right? Do you think there is that? Uh, room for them in this fight to tackle climate change sure
1: absolutely yeah about half of carbon 13's uh investments are software uh so in software companies um in the last couple of rounds of investments that we've made we've moved to a position more like one-third sort of what you might call pure hardware companies one-third pure software companies and one-third hybrid companies where maybe the there's a a sensor or some kind of robotics involved, but the business model is based on data and and uh, and, and is a hybrid sort of thing. Um, I think in the green fintech space, where we've made quite a few investments, there's the, you know there's a lot of room for software uh, software based innovation. And insurtech is a, is something that you mentioned in your in your question. One of the leading uh, in, in terms of valuation, one of the leading investments that we've made is is in a company called Kita, which is the world's first insurer for carbon offsets, right? So you, uh, all these companies are buying carbon offsets. Uh, they, they, uh, they, as we've seen actually recently in the news, uh, it's hard to be sure that the carbon that you've paid, that the, that let's say a Microsoft or a Strike has paid to have offset has actually been, been done, right? And so uh, Kita is providing an insurance product to insure uh, against the risk of carbon non-delivery. And the effect of that is to drive fraud out of the market and increase the overall quality of the carbon offset market. So it's a very interesting, uh, interesting angle on the on on, on the whole approach. Um, I, there's something in your question, babatarik which is implying that analytics has a major role to play, which is absolutely right. And if you if you look at the Carbon 13 portfolio and you click on platforms, uh, you're going to see a, a lot of analytics uh, startups like that, which are really pure. Uh, pure, pure, pure data plays. Pure software plays that that work in that direction. Um, thanks for the question. Really appreciate mm-hmm.
0: it. And Chris, we have this gl- real global audience because the next question is from uh, Indonesia. So Cynthia says uh, they've Jakarta has just launched a climate tech hub, and she's asking about the waste industry. Right? Uh, what is the potential? of clean tech climate tech innovation in this space are there are people investing
1: well absolutely I, I'm I, you know I'm going to be able to give a really um, quick and clear answer to your question because one of my academic colleagues he met we, we had a, a random chat yes yesterday at at our faculty meeting and he asked me to email him this morning uh, I'm just going to put it in the chat if that's all right with conrad uh, a list of the companies that carbon 13 is invested in that have their roots in the waste industry <laughs> um okay no i can't do it i have to connect to comment <laughs> I well, you, you can, can just put it in
0: the it. private chat and then I'll, 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 I'll put it in the private I'll chat
1: okay up. fantastic yeah. fantastic i'll just um so that's a list uh okay it hasn't come through in a particularly formatted way but that's a list of the of the uh, of the climate tech investments that somehow have that element of resource efficiency around waste streams. Uh and so I hope if you look at that if you if you if you look at the websites of those uh there's about ten companies, uh it will give you some inspiration for what you're trying to do in Indonesia. And you know, Cynthia, I mean I I'm a I'm a uh I'm not, you know, I'm working on carbon thirteen, but I'm very keen to support climate innovation uh anywhere in the world. So please do get in touch if if you think uh, I can give you some useful perspectives. I'm very happy to make some time.
0: And this is the list of uh, waste tech investments. So Chris, just to clarify, was, are these investments that Carbon 13 has put in?
1: So those are all companies that Carbon 13 has invested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I won't run through every single one because there's quite a few, but uh, Food Squared, for example, is working on taking waste streams and turning them into food products. Right, And there's quite a lot of startups working... In, uh, working in that area, but there's some very clever biochemists in that team who are saying, "Okay, we need to not just create these products. We need to find more innovative ways of taking a waste stream and developing it into uh, a, an, an edible product." Uh, uh, Cocoon is taking waste material that gets generated internally in a steel factory uh, and 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 turning uh, and sorry, not in a steel factory, in a concrete factory and turning it into sustainable steel. Right? Uh, and so this is a really, it's a fascinating uh, innovation where they, they're aerosolizing one of the waste products that comes out of a, of, of a cement uh, production process. And uh, by doing that, they're able to turn it into a sustainable building material. And there's quite a few building material uh, startups uh, on, on, on the list here. Key hydrogen is generating green hydrogen from uh, uh, landfill sites, right? uh, and, and has a very interesting approach to that. Anyway, I won't go through every single one because that'll start to they'll start to blur into each other, and uh, and I'm not sure it's it's super relevant for everybody in the in the discussion. But I'm glad you asked the question, Cynthia. Uh, 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 yeah. Cynthia.
0: Uh, it's taken us almost forty-five minutes, but someone had to ask a question about generative—you you know, generative AI. Yeah. Um, so, Kapil from India asked, Everybody drink. Uh, <laughs> That's the buzzword. Do you see any applications of generative AI or AI in general in climate climate tech?
1: Well, anytime you've, ha- you've okay, so AI in general. I mean, there's a great joke in the startup world where we say. Yeah, it's AI when you're talking to investors, and it's machine learning when you're hiring engineers to uh, to develop the the underlying yeah. tech. Um, you know, machine learning and AI has been around for a, you know a while. Generative AI has obviously got this incredible profile, which I mean, and justifiably so. It's very exciting, uh, very exciting technology, and I'll come back to that. But you know, anytime you've got analytics, uh, it's a natural a natural extension of any analytics model to say, okay, so. And can we use machine learning and AI to extract uh, actionable insights, uh, and maybe even automate actual uh, actionable insights into actions uh, using that stream of analytics? Right. So that's that's a you know, that's almost a generic tool that you would say, you know, applies to any any startup idea. Certainly, any analytics-based software idea. Um, generative AI. I mean, as an entrepreneurship lecturer, I feel super privileged to be around at the birth of generative AI. I mean, if you're my age, mid-50s, you think, oh, the big innovation in my lifetime happened with the rise of the microcomputer and the internet. Um, but now we get another wave, which I think shows every every promise of being just as important or more important than uh, in, in terms of just changing the world uh, that, than, than that in bit, uh, wave of innovation. So super exciting. Um, when I talk to my entrepreneurship classes in the MBA about uh about generative AI the way I think of it is this if you look at the the top AI startups at the moment it's about like if you go a great tool for for thinking about these kinds of issues is uh, is is CB insights which comes from crunchbase um, uh, so they they generate a, a what are the hot hundred AI startups um, and what you see is about 40 percent of those startups are what I would call uh, picks and axis startups so just building, building out the infrastructure that allows generative AI to, to become useful. Uh, about 30% of that list, 30, 35% of that list is uh, is somehow cross-industry platforms using generative AI. I'm, I'm quite bearish on the prospects for these, this type of innovation because it, I don't find it to be sufficiently customer-led, right? It's, it's basically saying, hey, there is a tool that is used across lots of industries. Maybe we can do a generative AI version of that. And I think that my observation over the years is that though that that as a starting point for a startup often leads you into a blind alley where you never really quite find the thing that is super relevant to a particular customer that allows you to sort of get things get things going. The the, the companies that excite me, and I'm going to link this back to your question in a minute, Kapil, um, are the ones that actually are focused on real industry pain points. Now, it's only 25% of the top 100 list, but that's just a sign of how nascent the Gen AI technology is. And if any entrepreneurs are listening or people who are sort of thinking, okay, how how am I gonna get in on the Gen.AI uh, uh, revolution? I would say two things. One is don't fall for the idea of just being an app in an op- in open AI's um, ecosystem. Do your own, build your own company. <laughs> that's advice number one and the second is look for real pain points in industry and then say okay how can gen ai be applied to that pain point uh that's the play that you know in five years time you're going to be very happy you heard this advice rather than the one that says okay what are a uh, what are vcs funding right now a lot of picks and axes a lot of infrastructure uh stuff look for stuff that really solves actual problems in the real world um now that does link back to your question capital because you know the way we're advising people in carbon 13 to think about gen AI is to say, yeah, okay, gen AI is a tool. Go identify the decarbonization opportunities and then think about how gen AI can be applied to them. So I'm sorry if that seems a little bit of an abstract answer to your question, but I assure you it's the right answer.
0: (laughs) We've got a few more questions and I know we're running short on time. So Chris, you've got to be really succinct here. Uh, Priya, Priya asks, uh, what about, What's your view about carbon carbon offsets? Is this just a temporary innovation for co- corporates to uh, make the transition to net zero? Is it another financial mechanism? It will create another asset class, or is it just to solve our corporate conscience? That last part I added.
1: Oh boy. Well, Priya, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of I'm glad you asked me that question, and I'm not glad because my view my view is is very black and white, um, and my view is that the car- the voluntary carbon markets should be outlawed. Um, they're a scam, uh, and uh, if you look at the work of Eleanor Ostrom, the great Nobel Prize-winning economist, a late, late uh, Nobel Prize-winning economist, uh, you only have to read the first three chapters of her of her book "Governing the Commons" uh, to to arrive at the same view that I just expressed. Because what she shows so clearly is that when you have a common resource, and there, you know that's a, I, exactly, you know, that maps exactly onto what. Uh, the carbon budget is our ability to uh, emit carbon as a common resource we can only do so much of it um, when you have a common resource throughout the history of mankind we have never seen a successful market-based solution to protecting a common resource right and what eleanor ostrom shows in her book is that that's not because humans are somehow flawed <laughs> although obviously we are right uh, it's because mathematically the amount of money that you can make by free riding and and committing fraud and scamming a market-based solution for a common resource is more always going to be more mathematically than the amount of money it makes sense to spend on policing uh that uh that 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 resource right so you know the fact that the the discussion you know that the journalistic coverage is saying 90 percent of carbon voluntary carbon market offsets appear to be fraudulent i mean that's not a surprise that's like a feature of the way that the whole thing is designed is that it's it's easier to scam it than it is to do it and and more profitable to scam it than it is to do it for real and there's no effective way of setting up a safeguard so i always say to people look if you say oh no but there's got to be ways to improve the situation go no go read the first three chapters of ostrom's book and you will arrive at a different conclusion. And what, what we need to move to, um, if, in case you're looking for the solution, uh, is we need to move to carbon taxes because governments sort of greed and hunger for resources is, is something we can rely on. Whereas people deciding that it's easier to make money in the carbon offset market doing it properly than it is doing it fraudulently, I'm afraid we cannot rely on that. Um, mm. So, I, you know, I, that's where I sit. Now, let me be clear. I'm only talking about the voluntary carbon markets right I believe that the incentives work out in a very different way in the, uh, in, the, in the in the sort of regulated carbon markets and and so I don't you know that's a useful tool that I think we should we should continue with but uh, voluntary carbon market offsets I think are are doomed. The only investment that carbon 13 has made in uh, a startup that deals in that market is Kita that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and that at least has the virtue of being a startup that is very much focused on improving the quality of, this, of, the, of, of the market. Now, I know I'm just contradicting myself because I just said that it can't be improved, but uh, of course the investments in carbon-13 are made by an investment committee, not just by you know, Chris Coleridge's academic research, right? So uh, it, it's, um, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> but there you go. Um, Priya, great question, fantastic question, really, really important important question.
0: And uh, we'll, we'll take the last question to Ahmad uh, on this idea of greed. So, Ahmad asks uh, Chris, how have you, as a venture builder, balanced the pursuit of rapid growth that the VC model demands with doing the right thing?
1: It's a great question. Okay. So, you know, you may have heard me say earlier, Ahmad, that uh, you know, venture capital is flawed, the startup industry is flawed, but you know what? It exists right now. And it's a way that we we already know how to change the world using the startup industry right? and the VC industry we've been doing it consistently for the last 30 years right and and of course the VC industry goes back the history of the VC industry goes back further than than, than the early 1990s but um, but the boom in the VC industry to roll out the internet to roll out digital technologies and so on uh, is something we 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 that kind of works and we know how to do it. Now, does it, is it wasteful? Yeah, maybe, you know, it depends on how you look at it, right? It's a tournament. A tournament means that some, there's some winners and some of the best losers in the tournament probably had something to offer, right? But the way the tournament worked, the winners got, got the spoils, right? Um, is that an efficient point of view? If you're one of those best losers? It may feel very, very uncomfortable from humanity's point of view, from the world economy's point of view. A tournament works, right? So it's a, you know, it's, a, it's 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 tricky there. Now, there's an interesting aspect to your question, which is about growth, right? And and what can we say in terms of, uh, you know, are there models which need to be need to win? but don't fit the rapid exponential growth model. And let me give you the example of Tesla, right? So some people say, and certainly Elon Musk, who actually, I, I got to tell you, despite you know, all the froth around this story, I, I think we have to respect a lot as an entrepreneur. And I, 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 you know, I kind of have a sneaking admiration for the guy. Elon Musk would tell you that Tesla is a clean tech company. It's a climate tech company. It's designed to reduce emissions. But Tesla are honest enough that they put the amount of emissions that they consider that they've reduced on their website. And it's not that many, not that much, right? The manufacturing process, right, of creating a a car that is typically going to have one person in it, uh, is a very carbon intensive process. uses a lot of steel, uses a lot of you know, industrial processes that result in a lot of a lot of carbon emissions, right? So I meet a lot of people and I know a lot of people who would say what the transition we need to make is finding ways of doing transport that get people out of their cars right that get people out of single occupancy vehicles and into different forms of transport that are just inherently more efficient right and i i kind of agree right i agree with that that you that is that is a transition that we we need to make as as a species right so You know, as a thought experiment, would we say that the fact that Tesla could raise a lot of money to grow their their innovation very quickly is a bad thing because it's kind of crowding out other innovations that we need? I'm going to reject that thought experiment, right? I'm going to say, no, it's not a bad thing that Tesla was able to grow as long as the system is able to recognize truly decarbonizing ideas when they come along and get behind those and, and, and push them to the top. Right. VC is not the answer for all the systemic and structural problems that we have in the world, clearly. Right. And and even uh, the question that we got from Senegal, right, saying, hey, you know, should, uh, you know uh, the, like I know lots of people who say, yeah, uh, c- VC is kind of a new imperialism where we we generate the innovations in certain hubs and then we we drive them. Uh, we drive them to the rest of the world. And isn't that kind of the same as as what the imperial imperial uh, system did, um, you know. I don't think you can make a. I, by the way, I, I'm not saying you can make a moral equivalence. There, obviously, uh, you know, people are making their choices to buy things in a market system from their own free will. So it's not it, it, there. You don't have this element of compulsion uh, that that was so. You know, that is the is the great sin of the imperial system. But um, but my point is that we can't solve all the problems of the world through VC but we can solve some of them <laughs> and uh, and why not try, right? Why not get, you know, that's how I, I, I wake up at two in the morning and a lot of the time I'm thinking, is what I'm doing enough, right? Is what I'm doing enough to make a difference to the climate crisis, right? I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working hard on it, but, you know, should I be doing more? Should I be doing something different? Is what I, I'm doing the right thing? You know, I, I wanna do the right thing. Uh, and I subject myself to that reflection and scrutiny, scrutiny all the time, right? But uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm content that I have, in Carbon 13, I've launched a vector of change, right, that has some relevance to the world and has some reality to the changes that we're making. And I would rather, I would rather light a car- candle than a curse the darkness, right? So, uh, so that's my, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of core to the, the, the logic. I, I love your question, because I think we should all be asking ourselves that question, am I doing the right thing? Um, Thank you. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Chris, for lighting that candle. Right. Uh, Yeah. And uh, I think if people are interested, this is the website for Carbon 13. Is that right?
1: That's
0: right. Yeah. And please, uh, I think we need more people to join Chris and others like him in terms of helping tackle climate change. So thank you so much, Chris. We wish you and all the startups from Carbon 13 the very best of success because everyone in the world needs those needs those wins, as you say. Thank you to our Thank audience for, so for watching and your questions. Today it's a double header, and so the balance sheet actually is back later at 17-15 hours UK time, where we'll have uh Nira Jory who will be talking about sustainability in large companies. So we're moving from startups to large companies. Um, so if you can please join us then. Till then, stay well and See you next time.